Welcome to the Healthcare Weekly Podcast, where you can learn about the innovative ideas and technologies reshaping the healthcare industry. Join over 150,000 monthly readers and listeners all over the world. Each week, we sit down with some of the most brilliant minds in healthcare to learn what the future holds. The Healthcare Weekly Podcast, healthcare innovation starts here. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Weekly Podcast. The Digital Authority Partners in Healthcare Weekly. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Jod Boer. He works as scientific advisor for mental health at ShareCare, and he's also the founder of Mind Sciences, a digital therapeutics company recently acquired by ShareCare. Jod, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Jod, can you talk? To me, about mind sciences, like we know now that it's become part of the ShareCare family. But for our listeners who are not as familiar with mind sciences, can you talk to us about what the company has done over the last eight years, some of the projects you've been working on? I'd be happy to. I'll give you the brief history and we can fill in any details as they become interesting. This actually was born out of a startup, a Yale startup, when my lab was doing mindfulness training research there. I was doing neuroimaging research to understand how mindfulness affects the brain. And I was also doing clinical studies to see how mindfulness could help people with addictions. We started actually as a company to look at how we could use neurofeedback as a way to help people acquire mindfulness training. We quickly learned that the hardware side of things was going to be years down the road. And so we pivoted to developing digital therapeutics. And by that, I mean what we all now know as app-based treatment programs. But back then, you know, this was 2012, people were using their smartphones for video games and, and starting to use them for email. So, you know, eight years ago, people really weren't thinking about this. Clinic, you know, people were delivering treatment. My clinic was certainly all in person. There were people at Yale, for example, Kathy Carroll, who were just starting to do studies with delivering treatments online. She was doing cognitive behavioral therapy and did some of the first studies to pilot that, delivering it via videos through the web. And we took it to the, I guess, to the next logical step, which was to deliver it via people's phones. And one reason, one reason for this was that, you know, as I was learning the, uh, the neural and the psychological mechanisms of how people form habits, you know, for example, with smoking, I was working at the VA hospital at the time and we were on a smoke-free campus. So I would look out my office window and I'd see my patients out in the parking lot smoking, you know, and you, you can imagine they have a cigarette in one hand and now, you know, every, everybody out there who's smoking, they've got a cigarette in the hand and they've got their smartphone in, in their other hand. And I realized that people don't actually learn to smoke in my office. So delivering treatment in my office was actually a little bit artificial. I could certainly give them skills and tools, but the important place for them to practice those, for them to actually benefit, was out in the wild, out where they were smoking. So on their front porch, outside of work, all the places where they had formed the habits around smoking. Because this mechanism is actually set up to help us remember to do behaviors in certain contexts. It's actually set up to help us remember where food is. You find food out on the savanna, and then your brain gets this dopamine signal that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So, you know, I started thinking about, you know, could we actually take my clinic and deliver it to people at their fingertips? And since they were already, you know, distracting themselves with their phones, why not deliver them through their phones? So 
the first CEO that we hired happened to have a background in documentary filmmaking. Her name was uh, Sochita Puv. We developed our first digital therapeutic for smoking cessation and took the skills that she had, took the research that I had, and developed an app called Craving to Quit. Now, this was based on research that my lab had done where we had found that you know mindfulness training could provide five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. And we were, you know, right in the in the thick of understanding the mechanisms of how it was working. And so we felt pretty confident that once we were understanding these mechanisms, we could then take this new modality and start cutting treatment into bite-sized pieces and delivering it digitally. One of the benefits of this is that, you know, instead of having people come in, you know, a typical treatment program for any type of addiction tends to be about eight weeks. People come in for an hour, hour and a half, often to a hospital or to a clinic site, and they get specific trainings. This week, we're going to do this. This next week, we're going to do this. Well, what we could do is we could cut this up into bite-sized pieces. We could take this evidence-based training and deliver it to people right at their fingertips 10 minutes at a time. So they could learn a module a day. They could then go and test those, try those tools out in the wild in their actual daily lives. And then they could repeat the process the next day so that they could start to actually develop the habit of learning. The other nice thing about digital therapeutics is that people can uh, not only learn in their own context, but they can learn when they want to learn. So some people, they learn best in the morning, other people learn best in the evening, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can see how this is much more personalizable than having somebody come into a standard program at a certain time of day on a certain day of the week. The other nice thing about digital therapeutics and things that we started experimenting with very, very early on, we're giving people on-demand tools so that when they had an urge to smoke, we could actually help them write out those cravings right in the moment. It's like having the therapist in their pocket, you know, and say, okay, help me through this. And as they started to internalize those trainings, they could embody that and bring it into context much, much more. So that's what we started playing with. We started with the Craving to Quit program. We've now gone, you know, we've studied this in high school smokers. We've, we're now adapting this for vaping. We've even just published a clinical study showing that with my lab, we could scan people's brains using fMRI before they started treatment. We could randomize them to get Craving to Quit or the National Cancer Institute's app for smoking. We could scan them a month later to see what predicted outcomes. And lo and behold, the Craving to Quit app could target specific brain mechanisms, the same brain mechanisms that we had discovered back in the day you know, when we were studying experienced meditators. And we found that in a dose-dependent manner, People were reducing their cigarette smoking only with the Craving to Quit program. This was very specific to that. We also found a very strong correlation between reductions in brain activity and reductions in smoking. So here we were lining up a theoretical tool that we understood the psychological mechanisms for. We could even line this up with brain mechanisms and we could line this up with clinical outcomes. Now, for me, that's the holy trinity of science in clinical practice is to have a theory bring that together with neurobiologic mechanisms, number two, and then show that those can predict clinical outcomes, number three. So, you know, all of this had, had gone very well with the Craven Equip program. We then transitioned or added in another digital therapeutic actually based on people pilot testing our Craven Equip program. So some people had reported that they were changing their eating habits based on using the program. And as a clinician, you know, I know that on average, people gain about 15 pounds as they try to quit smoking because they often substitute eating 
forced smoking a cigarette. And some of it also has to do cigarettes, you know, nicotine's a stimulant, so that can affect appetite as well. So I was thinking, okay, you know, you're gaining weight, or, you know, that's expected. And they said, no, 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 we're actually losing weight. <laughs> that's when my eyes kind of popped out of my head. And as I put them back, my eyes back in my head, I said, well, tell me what was going on. And they said, you know, we're actually using these tools to cut down on snacking. And this big aha moment came. I was like, wait a minute, this same mechanism, this is this mechanism was actually set up for eating. Can we actually use it to help people change unhealthy eating habits like emotional eating, stress eating, overeating, all this stuff? So we developed this Eat Right Now program. So basically same type of format where you know they get 30 core modules, 10 minutes a day, in the moment exercises, all that. I and then studied it and in a study led by Ashley Mason at UCSF, she found that there was a 40% reduction craving related eating. So mechanistically, we're seeing the same thing with smoking and with eating, and we're seeing really robust clinical effects. Next thing we did was to apply this to anxiety because a lot of our folks who were in the eating program were saying, you know what, I eat because I'm anxious. So we said, okay, what's going on here? We looked at the mechanism. It turns out that Anxiety is driven in a reward-based learning pattern that's very similar to smoking and eating. It's reinforced through a process called negative reinforcement. So, for example, if somebody has a negative emotion, like anxiety, that's a trigger. Then they start to worry, that's the behavior. And then there's this reward that comes from that where they distract themselves or they feel like they're in control. And that actually perpetuates a cycle that's evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. Eric Kendall got the Nobel Prize in 2000 showing that this same learning process happens in sea slugs and humans. And here we're seeing this in humans. This is work done by T.D. Borkovec at Penn State back in the 80s. So, you know, when we looked at the theory, it lined up very nicely. We developed this Unwinding Anxiety app, uh, similar formats, help people, you know, understand their habits around anxiety, give them mindfulness training tools to work with them. And then, of course, we ran the clinical trials. Now, we just finished two. We just published one with anxious physicians. And unfortunately, it was the easiest study I ever recruited for. It took a single email from the CEO of a healthcare system in the Northeast to get all the participants that we needed. So that's how anxious physicians are. And this was, mind you, this was BC. This was before coronavirus. So, you know, anxious physicians before this whole pandemic hit, even more anxious and burned out physicians afterwards. So this was an open label, single arm trial. We just wanted to see if it worked. We got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores. We used the generalized anxiety disorder seven measure, the GAD7. And we had also thrown in some measures around burnout just to see what was going on. We found a very strong correlation between burnout and anxiety, certain aspects of it. And we also found that burnout reduced significantly. We got a reduction of 50% in cynicism in individuals who are using the unwinding anxiety program. And so, you know, we're seeing reduction in anxiety, we're seeing reduction in burnout, but we needed to replicate that study in a randomized control trial to make sure this wasn't just effects of time or whatever. Well, wouldn't it be great if, if physicians' anxiety went down by 57% just by the passage of a couple of months? So we had a sense that that wasn't just because of the passage of time, but the only way to test that is through a randomized controlled trial. So we did that study with people with generalized anxiety disorder. This was a study funded by the NIH, the National Institutes on Mental Health in particular. And here we found that people that got the unwinding anxiety program, in addition to standard care, had a 63% reduction 
in generalized anxiety scores. Now, this is, this is huge because these folks are the Olympians of worry. You know, they're really, really good at worrying. And we're getting a 63% reduction. The standard care group, which was our control group, got a 15% reduction. So, it, you know, it's good to see that the clinical care is working, but not nearly as much as this program. Now, just to give you a sense of the magnitude here, there's this clinical measure called number needed to treat, which is basically a quick and dirty number that gives you a sense for how many people you need to treat for one person to benefit from a a treatment. So for example, with antidepressant medications, which are the gold standard for anxiety right now, the number needed to treat is 5.15. So you need to treat just over five people for one person to benefit. Well, in our study, the number needed to treat was 1.6. So you only needed to treat just, you know, over one and a half people before you could see benefit in, in one person. So you can see, you know, digital therapeutics at least with these case studies with smoking, with overeating, with anxiety, if you really can understand mechanistically what's going on, digital therapeutics seem to be a really good way to target those mechanisms specifically with big clinical effects. So, you know, that's kind of what we've been up to over the last eight years. I'll pause there because I'm sure I just gave you a bunch of information. I'm sure you've got questions. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't want to interrupt. You're obviously very passionate about the work you're doing, and that's an amazing thing. I did take down a few notes, particularly with things that you've mentioned that I think would be beneficial if you provide a little more context around. Um, When you started talking about your your company and throughout the last 10 minutes, you've mentioned mindfulness research and neurofeedback, but what do these terms mean for people who are listening to the podcast or not familiar with these terms? Sure. So neurofeedback is basically just giving people feedback from their brain activity in short. So we could, using fMRI and now we use source estimated EEG, we can actually measure brain activity in a specific brain region and we can show people uh, visually or we can use other you know, auditory, tactile, other ways of giving them feedback so they can get a sense of whether their brain activity is increasing or decreasing. If somebody wants to see what this actually looks like, 60 Minutes came in and did a short segment with our lab and Anderson Cooper actually sat down and we hooked him up and and we had him get anxious, you know, on camera and then practice meditation. You could see his brain activity uh, change significantly there. With mindfulness training, I think of mindfulness as this capacity to become aware of what's happening in the present moment. And when we become aware of this, we're actually not caught up in it. So often, we're going along on autopilot where we're not paying attention. We're just kind of reacting to whatever's happening. You know, something's pleasant, we want more. Something's unpleasant, we want less. Mindfulness helps us become aware of those pushes and pulls and change our relationship to those. So instead of trying to change what's happening, we can change our ability to get sucked into those so that we're not sucked in as much so that we can choose what actions we do rather than just habitually reacting all the time. Does that make sense? In theory, it makes sense, but what I want to talk a little bit is like, okay, so you said Anderson Cooper came to your lab, you got an anxious, then you calmed him down by practicing meditation. And, you know, like that's what I'm saying. Like, in theory, that sounds good, but like, can you talk about Anderson Cooper? Like, how do you practice meditation once you've actually got a person anxious? And then once you answer that question, the interrelated question would be like, okay, so if you could do all these things through the mobile app, what would that experience look like? 
Yeah, those are great questions. So with Anderson Cooper, he came in, we had him think of a time when he was anxious. He was able to do that pretty easily as we watched his brain activity kind of go off the charts. He'd learned to meditate about a month before he came in. He was doing this as part of his story for 60 minutes. So we had him just pay attention to his breath. And what the breath awareness does is it's kind of an exemplar of what meditation practice is. So we find an anchor in the present moment. It could be paying attention to our breathing. It could be paying attention to the physical sensations in our feet. It could even be paying attention to the sounds around us. We just need something in the present moment that we can anchor to. And what I mean by anchoring to is just pay attention to and notice it. So for example, you know, we can notice as we breathe in what it feels like as our chest and our belly expands if we're doing, you know, taking a deep breath into our belly. We can even notice what that pause feels like between the in-breath and the out-breath. And then we can even notice the physical sensations as we breathe out. What that does is help provide this anchor so that we can notice when we are lost in thought, which happens about 50% of waking alike, according to some studies. I think an analogy of a boat in an anchor actually makes a lot of sense here. So if there's a boat out in the ocean, there are winds or there are currents, those are going to blow the boat all over the place if the boat doesn't have control. But if you drop an anchor, that boat's not going anywhere. And in the same way, you know, we're like that boat and habitually we're just following our thoughts. You know, here's this thought and then we react to it. Here's another thought. We react to it. Here's a sound. We react to it. Here's a body sensation. We react to it. Well, what we can do is drop this anchor and we can notice, you know, for example, just feeling of sensations in our feet. And then as soon as we anchor ourselves in the present moment there, and then this thought comes up that tries to pull us off and we can feel that tug on the anchor and we're like, oh, there's a thought. And we can simply note that, oh, there's a thought, there's thinking. And when we do that, we're not caught up in that thought where we can realize that there's space. You know, that's just a thought. I can, I can listen to it. I can, I can just acknowledge it and let it go. And we actually use this. So you're asking, you know, how does this play out in the digital therapeutics? We've built in a bunch of tools into these apps. So for example, with the Craving to Quit app and the Eat Right Now app, we have a craving tool where we have people, you know, when they have an urge to smoke or they have an urge to eat some food, we have them actually pay attention as they eat. So it's not just, you know, meditation that can train mindfulness. That's one way to train mindfulness, but we can actually train mindfulness by paying attention as we do daily activities. So with smoking, we have people pay attention as they smoke. And what they start to realize is that smoking actually tastes like crap. <laughs> That's why you have to flavor the vapes and why you have to have menthol cigarettes so that you can numb your taste buds. So when they really pay attention as they smoke, they realize that smoking isn't actually as pleasurable as they might have remembered back when they were 13 or 15 or when, whenever they started smoking. Even then, it probably wasn't that pleasurable, but they were doing it to rebel or, or whatever. So as people pay attention when they're smoking, the same is true for overeating. You have people pay attention as they overeat. What's it actually feel like? That reward value starts to drop. And what I mean by that is, you know, our brains are going to make decisions based on how rewarding something is. So something got laid down as very rewarding, like smoking. You know, we smoke to be cool at school or a rebellious teenager or whatever. That gets laid down as a habit. And then we're smoking just habitually 20 years later or 30 or even 40 years later. Actually, I had a patient who came in who'd been smoking 40 years and he reinforced that habit loop 293,000 times by the time he came in to my clinic. So 
you know, the only way to change a habit is to actually go at the reward value. It's not, you know, if we could just change a behavior based on the behavior, I'd just tell my patients to quit smoking and they would. And I would happily be out of a job. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. You've got to really hammer at reward value. So they realize that smoking doesn't taste that good. They realize that eating doesn't feel that good. That reward value drops and it makes it easier for them to start to change that behavior. But sorry, you were going to say something. Just sticking with a smoking example for a second, what you're saying makes sense as in you're decreasing the reward value of a cigarette, which would make people more likely to quit. But for smokers, myself included, the one thing that's always an impediment is the craving, which I'm not a doctor, but to me, like it feels physiological. You know, I wake up in the morning and I want to have a cigarette, or more importantly, when I have lunch or dinner, it's like, oh my God, I need a cigarette so badly. So mm-hmm. I want to ask you about the digital therapeutic component and like you have the mental model that has to be shifted, but also the physical addiction to nicotine, which makes the body want the cigarette. Right. How does right. digital therapeutics help with the second part? Right. So there are two aspects to cravings. And I'm glad you bring this up because it's really important. So there's the physiologic dependence, like you're talking about. When people smoke cigarettes, you know, they become dependent on nicotine. And nicotine actually has a very short half-life. It only sticks around in your blood for about two hours. So the typical smoker, if they smoke a pack of cigarettes a day, they're out there smoking about every two hours because the blood levels go down, their nicotinic receptors start to get agitated and say, hey, you know, I need my nicotine. And then you go out and smoke and it, and it goes back up. So there's the physiologic component. The way that we address that is that we actually have people set a quit date and then we can develop an algorithm to help them cut down proportionally every day. Just a, you know, usually it's a couple of cigarettes a day. And when somebody cuts down just a couple of cigarettes a day, they can naturally taper that so that it minimizes, let's say, the agitation, the restlessness, all that that urge that comes from the physiologic dependence. They can also pair it with nicotine replacement medications, and and that works, you know, that works very well. And we actually can hook people up with all of that stuff paired with our Craven Equip program. So there's the physiologic component, and you know, for, fortunately, I'm a physician, so I actually could think about all of that stuff and, and plan it rationally so that we can minimize the withdrawal symptoms that people have. You can tell me if this is true for you. The physiologic cravings are not actually as strong as the psychological ones. And the reason for this is that especially if somebody smokes 20 cigarettes a day, they don't actually need that much nicotine. One of my friends at Yale who does the neuroimaging on this stuff she found that you can actually saturate the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors within three puffs of a cigarette, right? A lot of my patients say, well, I don't want to waste the cigarette, so they smoke the whole thing, right? So we're actually getting a lot more nicotine in our system than we actually need. And so there, this psychological component, when you actually mentioned several of of the common ones. So after a meal, when we have paired smoking a cigarette with finishing a meal, or smoking a cigarette with taking a break at work or whatever, all of those psychological pairings lay down, this goes back to this context-dependent memory formation. So they say, well, you just had lunch, it's time for a cigarette. And our brains really, you know, that's a really, really strong learning mechanism. So we have to address that as well. And the way we can address that is by giving them mindfulness tools to help them 
ride out cravings. And I'll give you an example. I had a patient. So we kind of developed this tool called the Wantometer for smoking. So when somebody has a craving for a cigarette, we can help them ride it out. What we have people do, you know, I have this patient who came into my office one day and he said, you know, doc, I feel like my head will explode if I don't smoke. He had a really, really strong craving. And so we went up to the whiteboard and I had him just describe what his craving felt like, right? So he started describing, you know, it was heat, it was burning, it was tightness, it was tension. And then I started drawing a graph. I said, okay, tell me, is it getting stronger? Is it getting stronger or is it getting weaker? And for a while it was getting stronger and then it plateaued. And then it actually started getting weaker right there in my office as he was describing it. And so what he realized was that when his cravings tended to get stronger and stronger, he would just smoke a cigarette and they would go away. But in fact, as he just brought awareness to the physical sensations, to the thoughts, to the emotions that were coming up with the craving, he could actually learn to ride out the craving without smoking a cigarette. Now, this is a big aha for him. And really a profound moment where he realized, you know, these cravings, he thought they had a lot of control over him. You know, he said it felt like his head would explode if he didn't smoke. But he realized that that was also just a thought. And as he learned some of these mindfulness tools, he could start to ride out those cravings more and more easily. So, you know, long story short, or just to summarize all of this, we can address the physiologic cravings by giving people tapers. We can bring in nicotine replacement treatments to help with some of those things. But just as importantly, if not more importantly, we can address their psychological cravings as well, which no medication has been shown to do effectively. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I've tried Chantix. You know, it works for a short period of time, and that's about it. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you from like a just pure personal example, and I do have a question about digital therapeutics at the end of it, I'm a standard statistic where like, hey, you, you see all these like vaping products and it makes you think, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop smoking cigarettes. And in my case, it worked. Like I went from like 10, 12 cigarettes a day for the last three or four months, I'm doing like three cigarettes a day, but then I'm, you know, I have my brand of electronic cigarettes in my hand all day long. And I realized like I'm actually probably puffing significantly more on vaping products than I ever smoked in the past. Yes. And what you're talking about is very accurate. It's like, it's that anxiety. Like in my case, personally, if I go for like an hour without either like a vaping pen or smoking, it's just that restlessness. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just like restless. Like I, I want to do something. And like a lot of things you're talking about, they're, they're really good examples. Like, okay, person comes to your office, you talk through these things, you have an epiphany, and then hopefully you address behavior. This is where my question comes in, you know, like I've failed quitting smoking so much over the last 10 years. And the one thing that I'm thinking about, because it's appealing, is like, how can an app make sure that I stay on track? It's like, are these digital therapeutics applications designed over the long period of time? Because if I come and talk to you in person, that may have a very different impact on my state of mind and how I react to cigarettes than if I just interact with it through digital means. Right, right. So that's an important point. So there are two pieces that I'll mention here, and there may be others that I'd be happy to explore as well. So one of these is that we take a very unorthodox paradoxical approach, which is somebody wants to quit smoking and we tell them to smoke. And you know, when I first started doing this, people were, you know, my patients were looking at me like, are you crazy? You know, the first doc that's ever told me to smoke. 
But really, you know, we're trying to really get at their underlying mechanisms. As people pay attention as they smoke, we've, we've actually just done a study on this. We're writing up the results for that reward value drops within 10 to 15 times of people just paying attention as they smoke. And as they pay attention as they smoke, they can't actually undo that. I think of this as a Santa Claus moment. You know, it's like the kid at the mall who believes in Santa Claus. And then, you know, uh, he reaches for the beard. And, and you know, you see the parents like in wide-eyed horror, like, no, don't grab the beard. But the kid grabs the beard and he realizes it's just some dude with a beard, you know, fake beard on at the mall. And they can't unlearn that. Suddenly the Santa Claus myth is over for them. Now, the same is true for smoking. So, you know, I don't know if you've done this with, and do this especially with cigarettes because vaping, they hide this a lot through the flavoring and all that. When people really pay attention when they smoke, I've never had somebody say, thank you, Dr. Brewer. I never realized how great a cigarette tastes. <laughs> like, no, it tastes like people, crap, right? Yeah. If I people say, I can't believe enjoyable. this. Yeah. I can't believe this. I didn't notice it for a year. How did I not notice this? You know, over decades of smoking. So that disenchantment is really powerful and helps people every time they smoke, every time they pay attention, it actually moves in the direction of quitting. So that's the first piece. And that's different. And I'm really shocked at why other groups don't do this. You know, it's, it's right there. The mechanisms have been known for a long time. But, but whatever. The other piece that we can do is we can personalize the programs and we can actually bring in coaches through the apps. So this is one of the nice things about digital therapeutics is you can provide asynchronous coaching. So lots of people are used to texting right now and they text, you know, Texting is now more dangerous than drunk driving because it's so addictive. So we can actually provide, you know, basically text messaging based coaching to people through the app. So somebody's struggling, they can work with our trained certified coaches to be able to to help them and wherever they're struggling, they can give them encouragement. We can have access to uh, their smoking data to see where are they struggling, what day of the program are they on, what, you know, what modules have they completed, what have they not. So we can actually give them very personalized coaching to help them along the way. No, that makes total sense. So let's talk about not just smoking, but you provided the example of smoking, weight loss, and anxiety management. You know, I see myself smoking more. My business partner uh, gained some weight. I know a lot of people at my company are anxious for working uh, from home. And that's, of course, to a large extent because we are in quarantine during COVID-19. And I want to hear from you, like, what have you seen with COVID-19 and all this isolation, particularly with your, you know, patients? Is like, are these trends getting exacerbated? Are people doing more of a specific vice or, or falling more on things like anxiety that now it's it's really just made worse and worse. And I know like Mayo Clinic in April was the first major provider who actually raised a hand and warned that the rise in anxiety among people stuck at home is at an all-time high. What's your experience being, been with your patients during the COVID? Yeah, I've seen this as well. Uh, I actually wrote an op-ed in the New York Times because of the unique circumstances here. Folks are interested. I actually made a short animation and put it on my YouTube channel that describes how this works. But it, you know, the one-liner on this is that fear actually helps us learn, right? That's that's part of our survival mechanism. But when you pair fear with uncertainty, 
you get anxiety because our brains are trying to predict the future, but without accurate information, they just keep spinning and trying to predict, but that predictions, you can't actually predict stuff. And so we get anxious because we've never, none of us alive have been in a pandemic like this before. So there's a huge amount of uncertainty, everything from whether, you know, we'll get sick or our family members or friends will get sick to the economic impacts, to our job impacts, everything, you know, there's so much uncertainty. So people's anxiety is through the roof. On top of this, anxiety is actually contagious. So you can think of social media is a great way to spread (laughs) disease through social contagion, disease being anxiety, right? So you can physically distance yourself from somebody not to get a physical virus, an actual virus, but somebody can sneeze on your brain from anywhere in the world. If you go on social media and everybody's freaking out, you know, this is where we saw the the meme around toilet paper hoarding and, and stuff like this. So there are several unique factors here, one being all the uncertainty, another being the availability of anxiety to spread through social contagion, you know, those are two major aspects that have affected everyone. It's not just people who are already anxious or have a predisposition to anxiety, you know, their anxiety is going up, but the collective anxiety is going up. And as the collective anxiety goes up, the likelihood that somebody else is going to get anxious or panic goes up even more. So this is really unprecedented and it's not going away anytime soon, the anxiety piece. Absolutely. So do you think digital therapeutics can help with this problem? You know, like if if all were equal and the world really knew about all the solutions that you provide for weight loss, for anxiety, for quitting smoking, do you think that if these tools like yours would be available to every American that experiences these issues, the end result would be better? Yeah. So I think if evidence-based digital therapeutics, so that's certainly what we're doing and, and what some others are doing as well. If those were available to people, I think this would help tremendously. So what we're seeing, and my clinic is also the case here, we're seeing a very rapid shift from in-person delivery of treatment to telephonic or virtual health visits. So my clinic is now completely virtual, completely telephonic. I don't know when I'll go back to in-person, So these tools were available, yet I think there was a lot of hesitation and just, you know, there's momentum behind a certain thing. And suddenly that momentum got shifted as in it got stopped. People could not see each other in clinic anymore because it was actually dangerous to sit in a room with somebody for 20 minutes to an hour. So here, digital therapeutics, as well as as virtual medicine, has really exploded into the scene where it's like, you know, the technology is available. And with telephonic medicine, we see that, you know, people adopting that really readily. And a lot of physicians actually, you know, find it, you know, very helpful. So here we can actually fix a lot of the things that were, well, again, fix all of them, but there were some of the deficits in our current healthcare system around accessibility, where people are geographically isolated, you know, all these things. You know, if they've got an internet connection, they can, or if they got a telephone even, they can now see a physician or they can see a clinician. So I think there we're seeing a rapid growth. It's just been accelerated like crazy because of COVID-19. And I think we're also seeing a rapid growth of adoption of digital therapeutics. We certainly see this with ShareCare. We've been getting a lot of, and even before MindScience was merged with ShareCare, we were getting a lot of incoming calls with people asking us, hey, you know, we need a digital therapeutic. We need something that can help people remotely. What do you have that's evidence-based? And we could say, 
well, <laughs> you know, what would you like? So I think we're going to see this across the board with digital therapeutics, just really finding that accelerant because the jet fuel was already there. It's interesting and a little bit paradoxical that like COVID-19 is, is horrible on so many levels, but like in the context of what we're talking about here, the worst thing is that COVID-19 has spread with a unanticipated velocity across the U.S. and the world at the same time where digital therapeutics are not yet as popular or, or well understood as they could be in order to deal with the blowback of how people feel about themselves, their lives, and their jobs in these uncertain times, which gets me to the last question and last theme I want to discuss. In joining ShareCare, do you think you're more likely to reach critical mass given the fact that ShareCare is a large enterprise company operating around the world and it's a huge, you know, branding and NPR machine and has tens of millions of people engaging with the brand? Yeah, it's a great question. So even before we merged with ShareCare, Mind Sciences was seeing actually very rapid month-on-month growth just through mostly through spread of word of mouth. You know, clinicians were finding our programs, offering them and suggesting them to their patients because here were evidence-based treatments that and their patients were coming back and saying, Wow, thank you, doc. This is helpful. So it actually, you know, relieved some pain for the docs, you know, primary care physicians are really hamstrung in the sense of, you know, they get very short patient visits and they don't have good treatment options for, you know, weight loss, for anxiety, for smoking. So here they could, you know, basically prescribe a digital therapeutic, give somebody an evidence-based treatment, and then patient comes back and says, thank you. You know, everybody wins there. So we were starting to see that already and weren't focusing that much on enterprise solutions. And here comes ShareCare, which has great reach into the enterprise and working with uh, direct insurers, with health plans, et cetera. So it was a natural fit for us to merge because they can then bring what they need is digital therapeutics that are evidence-based and they can say, you know, go to their direct insurers, they can go to the health plans, they can go to their enterprise partners and say, well, here you go. And so the enterprise partners are really excited about it. And we're really excited because these digital therapeutics can reach more people than ever before. You know, just as an example, recently we were able to offer our Unwending Anxiety app to every single resident in the state of Arizona. We would have never been able to do that just as a small startup when we were just mind sciences. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is where uh, ShareCare's infrastructure helps propagate your message and your evidence-based treatment to a much bigger audience. So what is your... um, goal now that you've joined ShareCare, do you want to scale your current uh, evidence-based treatments? Do you want to develop new ones? Do you want to hear more about like your own personal goals in relation to the company you've joined? Yeah. So one thing that we'll do that's the obvious next step is to scale our evidence-based digital therapeutics. I think one thing that is hampering the field as a whole is the lack of evidence. There are a bunch of digital therapeutics out there, but very, very few of them are actually evidence-based and even fewer have actual randomized controlled trials backing them up. So I think as a field, you know, the field is very young, takes time to do these randomized controlled trials. So we've kind of got a leg up there. And now it's a matter of just hitting the gas pedal and, and getting this out there. So that's the obvious next step. 
The other thing that this opens up for us, you know, is mind science is we don't have to worry as much about reaching people because now we've got share code that can do that, that frees us up to go back into the creative process and develop other digital therapeutics. So as I mentioned, we're just about to launch a vaping product. And we can also look at other sectors, helping people with financial help, helping people with depression, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As we develop the evidence base, we can develop these digital therapeutics at a much accelerated rate. Thank you so much for being on the Healthcare Weekly podcast today. It's been a real pleasure, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about uh, your great programs and how they evolve over time as part of the ShareCare family. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Healthcare Weekly podcast. Don't forget to visit us at healthcareweekly.com. Subscribe to our channel on your favorite podcast app to get a notification every time a new episode is released. Do you know of an inspirational health leader who should be on our podcast? Email us at hello at healthcareweekly.com with details. Healthcare Weekly Podcast. Healthcare innovation starts here.